Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For, the Lord, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. You may be seated. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are continuing this study in the book of Acts. And last week was a key moment as the Apostle Paul and his traveling companion uh, Barnabas were sent off by a church in uh, Antioch. And really, they were sent off to kind of begin to do missions work and uh, spread throughout the Roman Empire and tell people about Jesus. And that's really what the rest of the book of Acts is going to be, is just a series of the Apostle Paul's uh, missionary journeys. And we really get a, a taste of his first one uh, here in, in this section in chapter 13. Now, what, what's amazing to me as I watch Paul, and as we'll watch Paul kind of do this ministry throughout the rest of this book of Acts, is how able he is to communicate the gospel differently uh, in, in appropriate ways depending on who he's talking to, right? Like here in this passage, he's talking to Jews, and so he speaks the gospel in a way that would really make sense to the Jews he's talking to. Next week, and when we get to Acts chapter 17, he's going to talk to people who have no Jewish background. They've never heard of the Old Testament. They've never heard of the God of Israel, and he's going to preach a faithful gospel, but in a way that they could understand it. And, and it's just interesting, as you kind of go through it, uh, the core of his message doesn't change, but the way he delivers it does change. He contextualizes how he says it, depending on who he's talking to. And we understand this, right? We're in a room right now that's decorated for Vacation Bible School. And when people uh, this week preach the good news to the kids in our church, uh, they will preach it differently than I will preach it right now, because they're going to try to connect to kids. And, uh, and, and so it just raises this question for me. For all of us who are followers of Jesus, I realize some of you are not, and that's great. We're thrilled you're here. But for those of you who are followers of Jesus, how fluent are you in the gospel? 
Are you fluent enough? Do you understand it well enough? Have you experienced it well enough to be able to speak the gospel to yourself, to kids, to friends, to fellow church members, to people who don't know and love Jesus at all? Can you, can you communicate the gospel in all of those different settings, or do you just kind of have one small, thin uh, slice of an understanding of the gospel? Can you adapt how you explain it in, in different ways? Here's one of the things that's interesting. How, how many of you are uh, able, how many of you are fluent in another language other than English? Okay, a few of you throughout. Okay, not many. Uh, if you're fluent in another language, it means you don't really have to do this kind of mental thing where you hear one thing and you go, okay, now how would I think that in English? And then you think it, right? You just, you just that whole thing happens seamlessly, right? In a way that for someone like me who, who just, you know, I, I went through enough Spanish to be able to get around to the bathroom, uh, if I need to get to a biblioteca, I am in great shape. That's a library. Donde esta la, el biblio, la biblioteca? Why would I need to know that ever? I don't know. I can get to the baño. I can have an hamburgueso. I can do all these things. But I'm not fluent. Right? Like when I went to Mexico a few months ago with one of our Juarez house building trips, I, I had to, every time I'd, I'd hear these certain words and I'd have to in my head kind of translate them. And that's how a lot of us experience the gospel. We've heard it. They're kind of familiar. We've heard these things, but we have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to really get it. Whereas if you're fluent in a language, like one of my friends, Christina, who's part of our staff, she went on a trip uh, to Juarez recently, and she, she's fluent in Spanish. And she said, actually, when she came back to the States, it took her a while to adjust to English again. Because she's so immersed in that language, she knows how to speak it. She dreams in Spanish. She doesn't have to do the mental gymnastics to make it work. And, and one of the things that I would really hope, that I, I know all of our pastors and elders would agree with this, we hope for our church. We feel like one of our jobs as, as leaders and as equippers in this church is to help you all become more fluent in the gospel. That the message of Christianity would not just be something you hear and kind of go, oh yeah, that sounds familiar, but something that you are actually able to so internalize and so experience that you're then able to translate it to yourself and to others fluently. And, and you don't really know if you're fluent until you experience something. Like I, I saw this with uh, my, my daughter, Mary, who's two. And the whole idea of language learning in kids is just fascinating to me. I remember one of the communication classes I took in college was all about how kids develop language. And I don't really remember anything from that class, but I remember that I really liked it. And I've just been fascinated by how you just speak all these words over these kids and they eventually like speak the language. I mean, that's just incredible. And, and I, I saw this just yesterday with, with little Mary. She's two, and her big sister came up from behind her and grabbed her and spun her around a few times, and she's kicking her feet. No, 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 and she, and she spun a few times. And then, you know, Abby put her down, and Mary said, I'm dizzy. And it struck me as so fascinating. Because think about dizzy. How would you try to teach someone what dizzy is? Like, how would you explain it? You know, like if you spin around, you feel funny. I mean, I don't know, like, 
you can't really explain dizzy as a concept. You have to spin some around and make them feel dizzy and go, okay, that's it. Right? It's like you're not really, so, so in a sense, her fluency of that experience, like, it happened by experiencing. And one of the things that I just so hope for our church is that the gospel would not just be this concept that's out there somewhere, but that it's something that we're experiencing in such a way where we go, oh, yes, that's it. That's the gospel. So what we're going to look at today is this, uh, this initial kind of message that the Apostle Paul gives uh, to a number of Jews, and we'll see how he kind of communicates the gospel there. That'll be different than how he does it next week, uh, but that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, to kind of recap where we are, because some of you haven't been here for this whole series, and that's all right, uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus had told his disciples, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he said, listen, you're going to be filled with power when the Holy Spirit is given to you, and you are going to be my witnesses here real close in this city, Jerusalem, in the nearby areas, and even to the ends of the earth. And then what's fascinating is the person that Jesus then selects to take that message to the ends of the earth is a person that early on in the book of Acts, he goes by the name of Saul. And when we're introduced to Saul, the first time we're introduced to him, it's when a bunch of uh, kind of religious zealot Jews are killing a Christian and they're laying their jackets and coats at Saul's feet. And it's that man, Saul, that Jesus will confront. And Jesus will say, you're not just persecuting those people, you're persecuting me because I'm a risen savior and I'm gonna forgive your sin, Saul, and I'm gonna make you go to the ends of the earth to declare my name. And that's what we begin to see here in this particular section. Now, I, I want you to know just how real and tangible this stuff is. And so I think a map, a kind of visual of what's going on might help. And, and maybe if you have a printed Bible, maybe there's a map back there. A lot of times these maps to me feel like, one time I opened the Lord of the Rings. There's like maps in the back of Mordor and the Shire. And I'm like, I don't get it. Never mind. I'll watch the movie. Uh, some of you are like, that's it. I'm tuning out. I'm not listening to another word he says. Okay, fine. But here's, here's a map that, that I made of this first leg of Paul's journey, and I did it on Google Maps to kind of go, okay, what would this look like in modern day kind of travel? And so it, it, this trip goes from right to left. Um, the, the furthest right thing there, kind of near Aleppo, is where Antioch is. That Antioch is what is the church that uh, Josh talked about last week in last week's sermon about how Antioch had really become the major sending and kind of activity church of the book of Acts. And so they're sent out from there. It's actually kind of right on the border of Turkey and Syria today. They're sent out from there uh, to this island of Cyprus. They land at Cyprus. They do a bunch of ministry there in Cyprus. And then if you have your Bible and you look at Acts 13, verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. That's the part that's on the west side of the island of Cyprus. Uh, they went from Paphos and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. That's that, uh, that kind of seaside place in Turkey. And then it says in verse 14, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. So here they are in kind of central Turkey. And the, the, the names can get confusing because they, they were sent from Antioch in Syria and they land in Antioch of Pisidia. But this is quite a journey that they've made. We do a thing uh, with all of the, the preachers within Redemption who are preaching a particular passage uh, a couple of weeks in advance. And, and the guy who's preaching today at Tempe at one point was a missionary in Turkey. And he said the most scared he's ever been in his life 
was on the drive from what is here, Perga, or a path, or I'm sorry, Perga to Antioch. So from the coast up in there and through the mountains. And he wasn't scared because of ISIS. That wasn't going on then. <laughs> he wasn't scared because of that. He was scared just because of the geography. It was so uh, rocky. It was so brutal. It was so winding. It was so imposing. They went on a tremendous journey, Paul and his companions did here, to preach the gospel. So they're there in what's now central Turkey, Antioch of Pisidia. And here's kind of the typical pattern that Paul would follow when they would come to a place. They would get into town and their typical practice, what we see, is that they go to a synagogue. So you know what? We're Jews. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish story. So we're going to go to the synagogues and see if they'll let us speak. And so that's what they do. They go to the synagogue and we see in chapter 13, verse 15, it says, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. That sounds to me like an open door, right? And if you're a first time guest uh, here today, we will not be inviting you to speak. Okay. So this is really interesting. I mean, but, but think they're going, okay, maybe they've heard of of, of Paul because he studied under this famous rabbi Gamaliel. Maybe they knew of him. Maybe they knew these guys have traveled this whole winding road to get here. Like, let's see if they have something to say. And so they ask him to speak and Paul stands up, verse 16, and motions with his hands and he tells us the story of what God has done in Jesus. And uh, so, so this is kind of the typical pattern. And what we're going to see here is, is just one description of what the gospel is. One description of the message of Christianity. One description of, of the good news of Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at here this morning. Uh, before we dive in, let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you. I thank you for your word. Thank you for those who travel great distances so that the good news about Jesus would be known. God, I pray that you would use this passage and that you would use this time that we have together to shape us, to make us more fluent in the gospel so that we can teach it to our kids, so that we can share it with our neighbors, so that we can even preach it to our own hearts when we doubt and when we struggle. God, give us that grace, we ask. Lord, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what is the gospel? What is this good news that we're talking about? Well, the gospel, you can describe it in a sentence, and that's what I want to do today, is I want to just look at kind of bit by bit this sentence that's a, a summary of the gospel. Uh, first, here's the first part of the gospel. The gospel is, first of all, good news. The gospel is good news. Look at what it says in verse 32. Paul is beginning to summarize his message here to these uh, to these Jews in Antioch and Pisidia, and here's what he says. And he says, and, what we, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Paul does not come with advice. He comes with news. What's the difference? Well, advice is, hey, you should do this. You ought to do that. Why haven't you thought of this yet? Here's what you should do. And a lot of us, we think, and I say, I say this a lot, some of you that are regular here are like, yeah, yeah, I've heard this. Here's why we have to keep hearing it. Because we keep messing this up. A lot of people think the message of Christianity is a message of advice. You should get more moral. You should stop drinking. You should start attending church. You should read your Bible. You should pray. You should, you should, you should, you should, you should. 
That's advice. The message of Christianity, rather, is news. Now, now get this. I know that when we say news, right now especially, this moment in our history, that is not a word that feels very good. Because we instantly think of bad news. Um, I was watching the other day, I was watching the NBA Finals on ABC, and I had to kind of jimmy-rig the you know, rabbit ears to make sure that we could get a good signal and watch the game and, and watch some of the post-game interviews and some of the post-game discussion and whatever. And so the TV was still on. I was, I was reading a book, and I'm sitting there on the couch, and the TV's on, and it goes kind of early to the, to the ABC uh, local news. And I was thinking, man, I have not watched the local news in, gosh, years. And I watched for about 10 minutes, and I thought, that's why I don't watch the local news. I was like, first of all, this is barely news. Like, most of this, who freaking cares about any of this at all? And it's not good news. It's just lousy. Like, after, after you just want to take a shower, you're just like, ugh, this place, this is, right? So, so that's kind of the local experience. And then obviously there's the big discussion now about fake news and what is news. And we all have lots of distrust of media. And so to, to talk about this as news is a little dangerous. But that's what this is. This is a message of good news. The gospel is good news. That's literally what the word gospel means, right? So when we have the gospel according to Matthew, that's the good news according to Matthew. The gospel according to John. The good news according to John. The gospel is good news. I was talking with a woman this week who, who doesn't attend our church, and her faith is kind of, um, kind of on the ragged edge, you could say. She's grown up in an environment, in a number of church environments, where there was a lot of advice, and a lot of you should, and a lot of judgment, and a lot of look down your nose at these people because you don't live up to this, and a lot of condemnation. And she's just kind of going, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't even know what I think about I don't know if I believe the Bible anymore. I don't know what I think about heaven and hell. I still like Jesus, but I just don't know. I don't know if I can believe all this. And, and what she was kind of saying was, I, I'm thinking about walking away from Christianity. And what I tried to plead with her was, listen, if whatever version of Christianity you grew up in, if that's it, by all means, walk away from it. Please walk away from it. But just know, you're not walking away from Christianity. You're walking away from a distortion of it. Because if you've grown up in an environment where the whole Bible feels like bad news, you've misread the Bible. And the problem isn't with the Bible. The problem's with your reading of it. The problem's been with the preaching you've heard of it. The problem has been with the environment that you've seen distort the message of the Bible, because the message of the Bible is fundamentally good news. Now get this, there are lots of parts in the Bible that when you read them, feel like bad news. A, it's just hard to understand, and B, there's a lot of things that confront you. There's a lot of things that say, hey, this is how we ought to live. This is what we ought to do. This is, this is, Countercultural. There's a lot there that we have to wrestle with. And go, I don't know how, how I feel about that. There's things in there that say that you're sinners. 
that you've disobeyed God, that you've distrusted God, that you've walked after and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, and that sin, and that sin deserves God's wrath. That doesn't feel like good news, does it? That feels like bad news. And yet the whole reason we have those kinds of bad news things is to point us to the ultimate good news we find in Jesus. The message of the Bible, the message of Christianity, the gospel, it's good news. It's good news. It's good news of what God has done. It's good news of what God has done. See, listen, advice is all about what you should do. Hey, you ought to do this. You ought to do this. We ought to do this. Why don't we? But, but, but good news, the gospel is all about what God has done. Now, we didn't read it in the whole scripture reading, but this is how Paul starts this whole message that he gives. If you have your Bible, look at Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 16. It says, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then here's what Paul's going to do throughout this whole next section. He's going to describe all the ways that God has worked for the people of Israel. Verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. That's an act of strength. Just put up with difficult people. God did that. Verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the lands of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, right? This is all what God did. God chose, God made them great, God raised up, God removed, God did all these things. This kind of has a pinnacle in verse 23. Of this man of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. This is what Paul's doing through this whole thing. He's saying, listen, listen, God has been working. God has been working. God has been working. And here's the latest thing God's done, Jesus. Verse 32 says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us. The gospel is good news of what God has done. Now listen, we try to co-opt this. And we try to go, well, I want a little, I want in. I want to, I want to contribute. I want to be part of it. Yeah, 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 God does it, but, but don't I have to have faith? And yeah, God, God does it, but, but don't I have to choose? And we, and we want to kind of have a little bit of the share of it, right? It's kind of like uh, my, my two oldest daughters were recently traveling with uh, my, my mom, their grandma. And uh, while they were gone for about a week and a half, Molly and I decided, you know what, uh, they've been in the same room for a long time, and our younger kids, we need to shuffle some stuff around. And so we thought, you know what, let's move their room, and let's kind of just redo how their room is set up. And when they get back, this will be kind of a big surprise and everything like that. And, and our oldest is pretty wily, so she kind of caught on to it. And so it wasn't that big of a surprise. But when they got home, it was like, look at this room that we have made for you. And by we, I mean your mother. 
right? But it was like, I got to kind of have a little share of it. Yeah, don't you like, don't you like how, 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 we, how we did that? Uh, yeah, that was a great idea we had, wasn't it, right? And, and, and the reality is Molly did all the work, and I wanted to share in the we. That's what we want to do with salvation. We want to have a share of it. We want to go, yeah, well, we got, and God's like, well, you did bring your sin. <laughs> yes, that's what you contributed, your sin and folly and rebellion. There's your part. But God did the rest. The gospel is not advice about what you should do. It's good news about what God has done. And not just what God has done in history to Israel and the Exodus and to David and to Saul and to all these people, but what God has done next through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel centers and focuses on what God has done through the death and resurrection of of Jesus. Paul focuses this on this beginning in verse 28. He's talking about Jesus, this descendant of Abraham, this descendant of David. And in verse 28 he says, "And though they found in him in Jesus no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus. This is good news about what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus. A few things about that we need to make sure we notice. Look at verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they had him executed. Jesus was guiltless, blameless, undeserving of death. And despite that, they carried out all that was written of him, all the prophecy that had been made about Jesus that these Jews would have been very familiar with. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Jesus was crucified on a tree. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Hebrew scripture said that cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. So get this. Get what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, the one who was blameless, the one who was guiltless, the one that deserved nothing but blessing was cursed on the tree. Whereas we deserve nothing but curse and Jesus deserves nothing but blessing, we get blessing and he took curse. He was crucified on a tree and laid in a tomb. This wasn't this theoretical thing. He actually died. The Son of God died and was buried in a tomb. But three amazing words at the beginning of verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And many people saw it. Listen, this is the center of the good news. The good news is good news because Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, came and lived a sinless life in your place and died a substitutionary death in your place and rose victoriously to inaugurate the new creation and to begin to undo all the effects of sin. That's good news. What did you do to deserve it? Nothing. Did God do this as some response of your faith? No. 
He did it just because he's great. The gospel is good news of what God has done through the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus. Why did God do this? What's the why in all this? Okay, this is what. This is what God's done, but why? Why? Well, to give forgiveness and freedom. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in the death and resurrection of Jesus to give forgiveness and freedom. These Jews would have been very familiar with the idea of forgiveness and needing forgiveness. In fact, every religious person throughout history has been. It doesn't matter what uh, kind of tradition or what um, religion or any of that sort of stuff, there's always this sense that that you have to offer sacrifice in order to forgive your sin. It's because we don't feel right. I mean, we just look around our world and we go, this doesn't feel right. We look within ourselves and go, something feels broken here. Some of us experience it as guilt. We just always feel like, you know, we, we don't quite measure up to, to the standard. That's true. Some of us experience it as shame. We just always feel kind of embarrassed and dirty. Our biggest fear is not that we fall short, it's that people would see it. And some of us don't experience it as much as guilt or as shame, but we experience it as fear. We always know, oh, I'm just kind of one moment away from God just zapping me, letting bad stuff happen. We just know something's not right. And so religious people forever have made sacrifices trying to appease the gods or appease God. And in fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says that the the people of Israel even would day after day and year after year make sacrifices, but none of them could ever fully take away sin. And yet Jesus shows up now to give forgiveness. This is how Paul brings this message home. Look at what it says in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. All of the effort you've been putting in to try to make yourself not feel guilty, to try to make yourself feel clean, to try to make yourself feel safe, all of that has been wasted effort because only in Jesus can you have that forgiveness of sins, Paul said. Now, the Jews would have been very familiar with the promises of forgiveness. In fact, there's some incredible imagery in the Psalms and in the, in the prophets that, that describe how God would someday through a Messiah, bring about forgiveness. Look at the descriptions of this. Look at this in Micah chapter 7. You again will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. What an image. The prophet saying the day is coming when God will just totally stomp out our sin and he will hurl it into the depths of the sea. It's just going to sink to the bottom, right? I mean, think about, that's a vivid image for us because we've, through technology, had the opportunity to see what it looks like at the bottom of the ocean. But think about for, a, for the ancient people, like, it, it's not, you couldn't get more gone than the bottom of the sea. And they're saying, that's where God's going to put our sin. He's just going to totally destroy it. That day's coming. Total forgiveness. Look at this image in the book of Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
right? This deep stain of sin will be totally pure and pristine like freshly fallen snow. Or look at this image in Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's immeasurably far. I know some of you are going to go, well, but there's this one line on the globe where east meets west. Okay. The point is, wherever you're standing, east is there, west is there. They don't meet. And as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God will get rid of our sins, right? This is unbelievable imagery. And here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, all of the hope that you would have that God would someday put your sin in the bottom of the ocean, all the hope that you would have that God would make you clean and white and pure, all the hope that God would remove your sin permanently and forever, that has come in Jesus. That's why Jesus has come, to give that kind of forgiveness that effort can't do and sacrifice can't do and diligence and you should and you ought and advice, it can't do it. Only Jesus can. The gospel is good news of what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus to give forgiveness and freedom. And freedom. Look at what Paul says in verse 39. And by him, right, he said, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Listen, the gospel does not just bring forgiveness. It brings freedom. Why does that matter? Here's why. Because the gospel's not just about disobedience. See, when we sin, we're not just morally doing the wrong thing before God, as if in the courtroom of heaven we broke the law, though we are doing that. But when we sin, we actually also are enslaving ourselves to things other than God. This is why uh, God tells the people of Israel in the Ten Commandments, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Why does he say that? Because he knows if you have other gods, if you worship and serve the created things rather than the creator, you're going right back into slavery. Listen, sin is not just disobedience, it's slavery. And the promise that God had given to the people when he rescued them from Egypt is the same promise that he gives to us. Look at it in Exodus chapter three. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is what Israel experienced in, in, in Egypt, was affliction, taskmasters, suffering. They needed deliverance, right? That's the same thing that we experience with sin. And, and we think, this is, this is the irony of sin, is a lot of times we think, we, we pursue things that are, that are created rather than the creator because we think we'll find joy there. We'll find fulfillment there. We think we'll find freedom there. Isn't that interesting? 
So we get enslaved to the approval of people because we think, well, if people like me and they give me the kind of nods and the pats on the back that mom and dad never did, then I'll know I'm somebody. But, But it never really works, does it? Or we get enslaved financially. Go, you know, if I can just get this stuff and have this house and move there and get this extra car and we could kind of leverage this and, and oh, this, this, this uh, entertainment set would be incredible and this sound system and next thing we know, the debt has piled up and we're enslaved. Or we get enslaved to alcohol or drugs or prescription or pornography or all sorts of other ways to medicate ourselves. And you know what's interesting about all of those things? All of those things that enslave us began as expressions of freedom. I can have a drink. What difference does it make? It's just a drink. That's true. It's just a drink. But all of a sudden it becomes not just a drink. It becomes I got to have this. And I got to have it now. And I got to have it every day. And I got to have it early. And I got to explain it and I got to justify it. No one starts out thinking, you know what would be awesome? I'd love to have somewhere around $120,000 in consumer debt. That'd be incredible. Financial goals. Hashtag. No No one aims at that. That's enslaving. That destroys so much of your life. No one aims for that, but we end up there because it's like, you know what? They gave me this credit card. And I'd kind of like to have that. And I, you know, I have freedom in Christ. I can do it. Yeah, you can. And, and so the offer of the gospel is the same offer that God made to the people of Israel. He says, listen, I, I've seen you afflicted. I've seen you with these heavy taskmasters. I've seen your sufferings. And I want to bring you out into a land flowing with milk and honey. We're not even agrarian people, but doesn't that sound good? I feel, I just feel, I just see like body wash everywhere, <laughs> right? Because all body wash has like milk and honey or the ingredients, right? And I just see it flowing, right? And, and, and just picture whatever it is that, that says abundance, that says enjoyment, that says fulfillment. That's what God is saying. I, I want to give this to you. I, I'm not, I'm not sending my son Jesus just to forgive your sin and kind of get you off in the courtroom of heaven. I'm sending Jesus to give you freedom to give you life, to give you fulfillment, to give you joy, to satisfy your soul. That's why I'm giving you Jesus. That's what Jesus offers. What's amazing is that someday in heaven we'll be totally free. I was listening to this sermon the other day by John Piper and uh, John Piper's had a significant influence on me over the years. I haven't listened to anything by him in a while. And so I listened to this message. This is a graduation message he gave at a college called, the message was called Sacred Schizophrenia. He talked about how for those of us who are in Christ, there's this schizophrenia we have that on one hand, we're living with this sinful nature. On the other hand, we've been set free in Christ. And we're just constantly battling in our lives and it's like this constant frustration that, that when I want to do the good stuff that God calls me to do, I also want to do stuff that is bad and just evil or selfish or unloving. 
and we kind of constantly are in this battle. But at the end of the message, he, he said this amazing thing, and I had to think about this because at first I was like, really? He said, someday in heaven, you'll get everything you want. And I kind of at first was like, that feels like overpromising. <laughs> And it kind of feels sort of worldly and carnal and shallow, right? Because if someone said, hey, in heaven, you get everything you want, what would most people think? Awesome, 50-yard line tickets for the Cardinals. Yeah, that's what I want. Maybe not the Cardinals, but... <laughs> you know, you think, oh, unlimited golf or all the food I could eat or, you know, oh, oh man, ev- a closet so big that it could actually fit all my shoes, you know? <laughs> and, and, and yet what Piper was saying wasn't that. What he was saying is someday in heaven, your wanter will be fixed. And you'll want what God wants. That's freedom. That's eternal life. That's what the gospel comes to give. The gospel is good news of what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus to give forgiveness and freedom finally, to all who will receive it. To all who will receive it. See, this is not a gift that everyone will receive. It's not something that God has done and just automatically applies to every human being that's ever lived on earth. Look at how Paul describes this in verse 38 and 39. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Who gets to experience forgiveness? Who gets to experience freedom? Who gets to experience this powerful work of God on your behalf? Everyone who believes. That's who. Everyone who trusts. See, the fundamental sin in the Garden of Eden was Adam and Eve saying, God, we don't trust you. And the fundamental way that we experience the blessing of God is by receiving his gift through trusting him. Why? Because trust is the currency of every great relationship. Every great relationship rises and falls on trust. It's no different with God. And so God says, if you will trust me, if you will trust what I've done for you in Jesus, if you will trust what I've given you in Jesus, you can experience forgiveness and freedom. That's the gospel right there. The good news of what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus, to give forgiveness and freedom to all who will receive it. How fluent are you in that message? I hope over the course of this series that you could get more and more and more fluent and able to explain that and preach that to your own heart to say, oh, self, you're forgiven. You're free. God loves you. There's no condemnation for you in Christ. Trust in Jesus. We would find joy there and hope there and fulfillment there. Now the question is, will you receive it? And there's three responses that we see in this passage. The first one is in verse 42, where it says this. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So the first response that we see is some people say, tell me more. Tell me more. 
Right? They have heard this good news and they go, oh my gosh, this is incredible. I've never heard anything like this. All I've ever felt is the burden of the law and now I feel freedom. Will you tell me more? I want to know more. And maybe you're here today and thinking, I, I need to know more. This is new to me. I haven't understood this. I, I want to know more. I, don't, I, I have questions. I have doubts. I have things I need to wrestle through. But tell me more. That's a great response. And if you would like for someone to tell you more, talk to the person you came with. Talk to the person who invited you. Come talk with me or one of our other pastors after the service. Come talk with someone on our prayer team. We'd love to tell you more because this good news is so good. But that's one reaction. That's a good reaction. The second reaction is what we see in verse 43. And after meeting, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Here's the second response. I'm in. I want to follow Jesus. That's what it's saying. As Paul and Barnabas are following Jesus, they go, we're following you guys. Tell us, how do we, how do, we do this? How do we grow in this? And here's what's fascinating. Do you see this in verse 43? What is Paul and Barnabas' message? Does he say, you know what? Now that you've believed in Jesus, that's good. I have some advice for you. Here's all the stuff you got to do. Get to work. So what he says, what does he say? As they spoke with them, they urged them to continue in the grace of God. Continue to remember what God did. Continue to remember the forgiveness and freedom. Just remember that. Continue in the grace of God. So some people go, man, I want to know more. Some people say, I'm in. I, I, I love Jesus. Some of you, even this morning, even though you go, yeah, I know this. There wasn't anything super new here. I could probably even teach this lesson, and I bet you could. But I hope and I think there's something in you, if you're a follower of Christ, that's going, wow, wow, God loves me like this. That's awesome. But there's a third response. It's the most dangerous response. It's the response that Paul actually warned about in verse 40. See, in verses 38 and 39, he offered the forgiveness, he offered the freedom, but in verse 40, he offers a warning. He says, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He says, listen, I know that some of you, you'll reject it. You'll scoff. You'll go, ah, it feels too narrow. No, I got to do something. No, I, I mean, this Galilean peasant, Jesus, he was crucified, really? And that's the result of a number of people. It says in verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Their answer, their response is get out, get out. I don't want to hear this. I don't want this. I'll be my own God, thank you. I'll be my own Lord, thank you. I'll be the master of my own ship, thank you. I know what will make me happy. And Paul says, scoffer. You're going to perish in that thought. Don't perish in that thought. Don't be one of these people who wouldn't believe even if I told it to you. I have traveled land and sea through perilous mountains to get here, Paul's saying. Believe it. God has done amazingly, abundantly beyond what you could ever imagine so that you could have forgiveness and freedom. Receive it. It's for you. 
It's good news. Will you receive it? Let's pray. God, thank you for good news. Thank you for good news to sinners like me who don't deserve it but are invited to experience your forgiveness and freedom. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts that are naturally resistant to anything that isn't about us and that you would allow us to stand in awe and to be amazed at what you have done for us in Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.